You're listening to Masters of Digital Transformation, brought to you by AIM10X and hosted by Tony Salzana. Welcome to Masters of Digital Transformation. I'm your host, Tony Saldana, and each episode, we bring you industry war stories with insights into the top challenges specific to digital transformation, and in this particular case, to planning. And I'm absolutely thrilled because my guest today is Sherry Mera. Sherry was VP e-commerce merchandising at Walmart and COO of Ontario Cannabis Store and is a co-founder and principal at M&M Business Advisory. Hey, welcome, Sherry. Thank you, Tony. Very nice to see you again. I'm excited to be here today and share a little bit about my story and my background in the digital space. Yes, and, and of course, your story and your cross-industry experience and leadership is fascinating. You've spent over 25 years in leadership roles across several companies, including, of course, among others, Canadian Tire and Indigo, and of course, across different areas like operations, merchandising, PL oversight, multi-channel product distribution, marketing, and both startups and large organizations. So that's been quite a journey. Would love to have you share your backstory with our audience. Yeah, thank you. I've been very blessed in terms of my career. I've had, as you uh, outlined, the opportunity to have a lot of really interesting experiences. And uh, I often get asked how I make choices around what experiences I take on in my career. And, and I say yes. I say yes to a lot of unique <laughs> and different things. And I think that's why, why I've, I've got the diversity in my background. Um, to give you a little bit of background uh, about myself and, and uh, my career. I started in retail. My father actually owned a store while I was growing up. He owned a Canadian tire store. So from the ripe age of 13, I was involved in hand bombing product off, off the back of a truck and, and serving customers. And I like to say I was bitten by the retail bug very early. I knew uh, probably before I finished high school that I really liked being in that business. So as I did my undergraduate degree at the University of New Brunswick, I continued to, to work in retail from taking product off the back of the truck, from receiving to customer service at front of house to running different departments across the store. Um, and so no surprise when I graduated, I, I embarked on, on taking my career to a retail organization and Canadian Tire was that organization. I went on to spend 11 years in, in their corporate head office across ma many different functions, predominantly in merchandising. Um, and what I like to highlight is, you know, I, I said yes to everything. I did everything from carpentry hand tools to patio furniture in terms of building strategy, figuring out how to procure and, and building assortments for customer before I went on to spend some time in, in corporate strategy and, and help that organization through. Having been really passionate about retail, however, I knew that I wanted to broaden my experience beyond Canadian Tire, and I'd spent 11 years in, in that organization, so I very purposely sought out Walmart. And so I went on to spend six years with Walmart Canada. I started in, in a merchandising role with toys, and I oh. will always hold it's the funnest job I, I ever had. <laughs> I, was, I was the director for, for toys at Walmart. That's really where I got my introduction into omni-channel thinking and recognizing that how a consumer was shopping was really changing which ultimately led me to the role of VP of, of, of Walmart.ca. And so I was part of the team that helped build that organization to a billion dollars and ensure it was profitable. I then went on to spend a year at Indigo, a book retailer here, and help them think through building out 
the capabilities to support being digital, but also being in a new business category. But I've been passionate about cannabis for many years. And so as Canada made the decision to legalize, I made the decision to transition into the cannabis space and leverage my, my many years of, of retail experience to help stand up a new industry. And so I've been in the cannabis industry for close to four years now. My first year I did consulting in the industry and, and the way the market was set up here in Canada, you required a business plan to, to apply for for a retail application. I know a little bit about retail and I know a lot about writing a business plan. You put those two together and, and I was helping future potential retailers write those plans. But in a political shift, our government changed here in Canada, how the market was going to open up, rolled out, and we went to a lottery system and an allocated number of, of retail stores would be open. And that essentially changed my business model. But what it did lead to is the opportunity to actually work for the government. So I went on to work for the Ontario Cannabis Store, which is the Crown Corporation, which is the sole distributor of cannabis in the province of Ontario. I went on to be the chief commercial officer for that business and help build what is the commercial strategy that Ontario operates under today. And, and very proudly can say that the Ontario market has captured close to 50% of, of kind of illegal market sales and is well en route to meeting the revenue goals that they, they outlined alongside some social responsibility goals through legalization. Oh my God, that is incredible. But you know, for our listeners out there, this is the power of yes, the power of being open to change. When you have the capabilities uh, that you do have, Sherry, I think it's more about how you apply your basic skills. And of course, you pick up subject matter experience or expertise in the industry along the way. So I, I, I have to say, I found your backstory fascinating. And then equally fascinating is the pivotal role that you played in shaping and driving omni-channel transformation at Walmart. So tell us a little more about your role in driving that transformation. Absolutely. Thank you for asking, Tony. I love this story. It's one of my, my favorite stories of kind of my career. But as I mentioned, I had the privilege of being the director for, for the toy business at Walmart Canada. And, and that is truly a privilege. Walmart has a number one position in the toy business with a significant gap to the next competitor. When you couple Canada and the US, Walmart buys more toys than anybody else in the world. So they're a very significant <laughs> player in that business. I was asked to come into the business at a time when the gentleman who'd run the business had been there for 25 years. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Don Cameron. I have the utmost respect for Don. He's in the Toy Hall of Fame. For a fun fact, he bought the very first Cabbage Patch Kid in the world. Oh he my saw God. that trend and, and, and jumped on it. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so Don had made the decision to retire. And so this gentleman who had essentially stood up the industry, so to speak, and how it looked today and had established Walmart as this leader had decided to leave the business. And this was happening at the same time Target had announced that they were coming to Canada. Oh, wow. And so while Walmart hadn't started to lose share, they weren't growing share any longer in the toy business. And they were in a place where they recognized it was time to come up with a defensive strategy and think offensively around what they needed to do for the future to protect this particular business. Were you even a little nervous <laughs> stepping into the shoes oh. of an industry legend at a time where there was turmoil all around you? I was. I was really anxious. And I also recognized that in addition to him leaving, 
the the industry in itself was going through a lot of change, yeah. a lot of change. We haven't talked about it, but I introduced at this point the Amazon factor. So while they hadn't started losing share, <laughs> and everybody, little factor. <laughs> right? everybody was sweating about Target coming to Canada, what was eating away slowly was this player Amazon. Oh. And especially when you started to think about the holiday season where 50% of your toy sales are, yeah. and the number one driver for consumers during holiday quite frankly, isn't price, it's yeah. availability. Cause when your kid wants the cabbage patch kid, like you're yeah. going everywhere for it. Yeah. And, and Amazon with their platform had the ability to deliver on that in a meaningful way. So all of that to be said, I took the role and to your point, I was very, very anxious about it, but I'm a firm believer in every business I've had the privilege of running that you start with the customer. And so we spent a lot of time in the first three months I was in the role, really trying to understand the consumer and how the consumer was changing. And what we very quickly identified is the consumer was shopping seamlessly through store and online. They were weaving in and out of that journey as it was convenient to their particular occasion. And the problem with that, as it pertained to Walmart, is Walmart had set those businesses up as two distinct entities. The brick and mortar business and the dot-com business were run entirely separate because what the thinking was at the time is you didn't want the innovation that was a small part of the business to be disruptive to the overall whole. The challenge with that, as I saw it, quite frankly, was the disruption is part of the whole. The customer is shopping that way. And without integrating that in, you're having two distinct conversations and not leveraging the power of this market share you have on a brick and mortar side to compete in an area where the customer was moving. And so the strategy that we built was what we called at the time an omni-channel strategy. Uh And and we proposed that we took the buying functions of the .ca team for Walmart and the brick and mortar team that we brought them together. We outlined what that would look like from an SOP, how we work with vendors to do strategic planning Uh and how we could then leverage that to have some meaningful consumer added values like always in stock, for example, which you can commit to. When we presented the strategy to the board, they weren't particularly receptive. They laughed a little, actually. Um, (laughs) We talk about omni-channel and digital transformation very seamlessly today. But if you rewind 10 years, that wasn't the conversation. All that to be said, three months later, the the organization circled back and said, we think there's a little bit of something to this. You got something there. (laughs) Let's give it a go. And so the Walmart Canada toy team became the test pilot for omni-channel integration globally. And so what we did is we we started by one, looking at all the processes, two, looking at all the people resources, as well as the company infrastructure resources. And we weren't going to rebuild everything for a test pilot. And so we kind of created an incubator that allowed us to figure out how to do those pieces, how we would make the trade-offs between what inventory goes to what channel and kind of those different pieces when you think about tactically how that operates. And we were tremendously successful over the holiday season. We grew our total market share as a business, not in the own lawn channel, but the total market share as a business by 700 basis points. Oh my. Um, I won't say it's the reason Target left, but Target didn't stay for a second holiday season in the Canadian marketplace. Part of that was not what we did specifically in toys, but they struggled with their inventory and on shelf and and kind of strategy around having availability. 
and, and didn't really have a, a presence in an online business to, to kind of complement for what the stores couldn't do. And so come the following February 1, we were very pleased with our position, but we took the results of what we did in Canada and we started a conversation globally. In the first place, we took it to the toy team in the US. Yeah. Anne-Marie was, was the VP of that business at the time. Myself and Anne-Marie worked concurrently to understand how you could take some of those practices into the US buying team right. and start to implement some of those pieces in the walmart.com business itself. It also led to my promotion and, and to me moving to solely work in the digital channel. And so at that time, I went to work for Walmart.ca. And at Walmart.ca at the time generated about $150 million in revenue and was not profitable. Uh, we had a free shipping proposition on everything to consumers. Um, no real strategy other than we needed to sell things online to compete with Amazon. Over the course of the three years, we built that business to become a billion dollar business wow. and to become profitable. And we did that by thinking through, again, the same principles of omni-channel, yeah. right? Which is the customer uses this in and out throughout their occasion. It's part of a journey. It's not a sole channel for them. And so we did things like changed our free shipping proposition to be a basket. We introduced other products like marketplace that allowed us to take commission revenue right. and not hold inventory which is a very different profit model that rounds out the lower margin businesses that walmart wants to be able to ship from online and probably most meaningfully we introduced grocery home shopping and oh, okay. and the, be the beauty of being part of a global business such as walmart is you have access to the global business that's right and and walmart at the time they they no longer do owned a business by the name of asda in the uk grocery home shopping was far more prominent in the european market than it was in Canadian. part of that is geography a bunch of different reasons but we were able to learn from the asda business around around what they had done with grocery home shopping and as opposed to building out a delivery model with a fulfillment center we figured out the cost to serve on a click and collect model. And that click and collect model allowed us to have grocery in a profitable manner. But it also allowed us to figure out this click and collect model yeah. that you could translate to general merchandise. Wow. And, and, so and, and which years were these? I mean, click and collect is something that everybody knows during the pandemic. I just want to put that into context. When did you try that out? So I would say that this would be seven years ago now. Seven wow, years there you ago. go. <laughs> and so, you know, to your point around the pandemic, what we did was introduce capabilities that are incredibly meaningful to that business yeah. today. And I've certainly sat back over the course of the pandemic and watched Walmart and their results and how they've performed in the market and what customer propositions they've been able to stand up inside the pandemic. And you're right, they were able to very quickly pivot to leverage their omni-channel capabilities to serve the consumer, given the influx, and specifically, I live in Ontario, the Ontario market has spent a great deal of time with retail closed mm -hmm. um, through the better part of the pandemic. So. Yeah, I love that particular story, because it's the story of change management. You can actually transform very, very large companies, and you can be very successful in doing that. I'm so, glad you brought up the change management piece, Tony, just to say one more thing about that, actually. It's yeah. interesting because, you know, I talk about changing the processes and how we're buying and working with the, the, the vendors and all of those different pieces. But that was about changing our operating procedures and, and documentation. The real change came in moving people's thinking. There you go. And this idea that while the digital channel may be smaller in terms of revenue and a higher cost to serve, it's incredibly important in terms of building the lifetime value relationship you want with your customer. Yeah. 
but getting people to change that thinking to allocate the appropriate amount of time to the smaller portion of the business to think about negotiating different terms for the smaller part of the business even when you think about the vendor community everybody wants to be in the store because there's 500 doors right (laughs) <laughs> the idea that online isn't 500 doors, but it's millions of eyeballs. Yeah, yeah different scale yeah. entirely. Yeah. I, I think your point about mindsets being the ultimate change is, is so true. We keep forgetting that the reason why large companies are successful is, of course, because they have some stability of operations. But then those paradigms and mindsets essentially work against you when you're a transformational leader. And so to your point, that mindset change or that culture change becomes one of the biggest challenges, but it can be done. So just to kind of stay with that and extract some learnings, what different paradigms do you think are necessary within large companies when you want to drive that kind of mindset change? I think it's a very good question, Tony. So first and foremost, I think change management needs to be intentional. It needs to be part of the strategy. And I think recognizing that change management isn't about changing the business, it's about moving people. And people all move at different rates of change and have different reasons for resisting that change. And using the omni-channel merchant, I've been a merchant most of my career. Merchants know what they do. They know how to do it. Change is hard. Change is hard. They're often the core of an organization. It's where revenue starts, right? And you often hear merchants talk about art and science. And so you're asking to take away some of the art and that's very difficult. So, so I think a couple lessons, which is one, I always believe in stakeholder mapping. So Mm -hmm. making sure that you understand all the stakeholders and that part of that exercise is evaluating where all the different stakeholders are on their change curve and finding your advocates finding your early adopters. I I call this my coalition strategy, but I tend to approach change with a coalition. And so when you can find early adopters, advocates for change, when you're collectively talking about what that change is, I I think there's there's a lot more weight to that than kind of individuals having change happen to them. I think the other piece uh, around what I call a coalition strategy is what it allows you to do is have a good idea of why that resistance is happening in different areas of the business. And that allows you to be really, really intentional in thinking through when, where, and how that change needs to happen to a particular function inside of a business, right? So I'll use the example inside the the Walmart story. Part of the change wasn't just how you're buying, it's supply chain. And and, in setting up two separate entities, there were two different supply chains. There was the the team that was procuring for for the online channel and procuring. They went into separate buildings. They didn't share inventory. It, It was a barter and it was a trade. And from the onset, we knew that managing the change across supply chain was a massive undertaking. So what we did is made collective buys with the LPs and cut two POs to start. It allowed us the time to go through with supply chain and do the necessary work to understand where those sticky points were. We introduced the change with supply chain about two thirds of the way through the project. We manually handled it as we went. Because of that, we had far more adoption and far more cooperation from the team. Okay. And it allowed us to leverage their thought leadership on what processes should be in place. Absolutely true. Right. And so that's one small example. But again, I think at at the very base, it's about making sure you truly understand 
what the change is, how it's impacting other people and why that might be resistant. And I think then building stories, building arguments, building collaboration around how to hurdle that. And then I think the other piece is if you kind of know the change curve, we get this and then we forget about the dip. And so really making sure, again, in any significant change in an organization is making sure we have those necessary touch points to actually come back, circle post-mortem the change we've done and reignite change so that we don't fall in, into these laws. That's absolutely brilliant. This feels silly, but I was raised to treat other people as you would want to be treated. So I go into change around how I take change and, and how I want change to happen to me. Well, thank you. And uh, kind of picking from there, your background story, having started in your dad's store, how has the merchandising world changed over that time? You know, from when you were a kid in your dad's store to now doing merchandising at a totally different level? Yeah, such a good question. So one, it's changed just for me personally from being very tactile and, and hands-on to, to now, you know, I write strategies around what that looks like as opposed to, to physically putting product on shelf. Although my dad still owns a store today and I've been on the cash register inside of the last year. So um, oh my, very cool. <laughs> if you need you know. help, you help. That's what That's you do right. when you, you have a business a family. Yes. So how has it changed? I'd say a couple of things. I remember when I had my first merchant job. I had a, a really great mentor in my early days of buying. And he talked a lot about the art, this gut feeling, this merchants are as artists and, and they know the customer, they spend enough time in store. You got to shoot from the hip a little bit would have been, been kind of this phrase. And what I would say, the most significant changes I've seen it is, sure, there's an art, but the science is equally as big. And yeah. today we have so much information. We have so much data that we can translate to make meaningful, actionable decisions. I mean, I love the art. There's nothing better than just seeing something that feels good and you kind of know it, it's going to work. The cost of being wrong today in business doesn't allow for as much art, quite frankly. And it's irresponsible given we have the data to make a, a more informed decision. And that's not to say that the intuition wasn't right, but... A computer can take a hundred million points a day so much faster than we can and take that same intuition and spit out a decision. The biggest thing for me that's changed is you need to know what to do with data. You need to know how to translate data into insight and therefore into action. And it's not about, I've spent time looking at the customer and I'm going to make a kind of gut feel around how that happens. At the crux of it, it really is all the same. You know, it's about a consumer has a need, you understand that need, and you deliver a product that serves that need, need with value. It, it, it's really quite a simple equ equation, but the world is complex and moving quickly. Yeah. Retail is fragmented today. Oh, so yeah. consumers have so many different choices, which changes the journey and the equation to getting to customer yeah. lifetime value. Yeah. And so data, for yeah. sure. But again, I say data with the ability to turn into insight because yes, exactly. I think the other paradigm that I see in merchant roles is this analysis paralysis. Yes. There's so much data. <laughs> and then how do you take that to a place that then becomes a decision, right? Yes. I suspect, not to play psychoanalyst here, but I, I suspect that your background in merchandising almost gave you that gut feel, that muscle memory on how retail uh, works. But then I suspect equally that your, your change seeking and your openness to change really is what probably made you such a fan of using data and, and judgment yeah. together. And that's, I, I strongly believe, is what's needed to be successful today. I mean, I think there is much more data that's available. There's many more insights. 
smart leaders codify what used to be art into science. Think about it a little bit like chess, right? There's two elements in chess, right? There's the tactics. Yeah. And then there's the strategy. And if you think about a machine and why machines play, it's because they can beat you on the tactics, their ability to know all the different (laughs) patterns and play that out, right? And you can win a chess game on tactics. Exactly. The strategy is kind of the icing on the cake. And in the one, 2% of time, you know, you add a person against a computer and their strategy may, but those tactics are incredibly important. Absolutely. And so the data is the tactics. It's the patterns over and over and over again. And if, if you can have the assistance of a machine spitting that out for you, so you just have to layer in the strategy to ice the cake. So I think about it a little bit like, like chess. That's a fabulous analogy. And it's a good reason to believe that that particular combination, you know, whether it's in retail or any other industry, so powerful. I mean, it's complementary. It is that human strategy along with the data. With That's the right. And I think you asked at the beginning, like why retail? I mean, one, my dad has sort of grew up about it, but I like people. I could sit for, for hours and hours on a bench and watch people. And I think retail is really about people's behavior, actually. And I find that really quite interesting. And, 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 the retail bug, so to speak, for me is this idea of watching the behavior and figuring out how to deliver something to the behavior. And when those two come together. Very cool. Thank you for sharing. And, and of course, on the topic of digital and data and transformation, your more recent experience in new industries that haven't really had to deal with digital disruption, you know, such as cannabis, is interesting. What's your analysis and what's your guidance to relatively new industries? I mean, beyond cannabis, what do they need to do, you think, to kind of anticipate and drive some of this transformation? Yeah, I'll start speaking a little bit about cannabis and I'll dovetail that into how it parallels into to other industries. But it's fascinating to me for a new industry standing up that is a consumer packaged good. Yeah, yeah, it's a combination of kind of agriculture and CPG. We can see what's going on in other industries. We can see the value of setting up good data practices from the onset, good foundational. Like nobody's done that. That's just fascinating to me. And it's the rush to get the business going, the rush to get revenue, the rush to, to get a return on kind of the capital invested and all of these different things have led to not laying, in my mind, good foundational pieces. And One, that to me is just fascinating in terms of the study of human behavior. And so my advice to to other industries is the foundation is what the house is built on. And going back to try and cement that to make that more stable is really difficult. And we talk a lot about Canadian Tire and Ona does work with Canadian Tire as well. But I started my career with Canadian Tire. I think Canadian Tire has got one of the most impressive data models Mm. and and you think about the company started in 1922 and how they thought about it but their logic in terms of how they thought about the data and how it was going to need to connect over time and and by hands down they don't have a perfect system but they thought through the connection of product to category to and what this hierarchy is and what they're going to want to collect and why and and how that's going to fuel in they had a loyalty program before loyalty programs were cool. They had to figure out how to digitize that to be able to capture that information. So I think about all of that and I think about new companies starting today and it's like, why wouldn't you want to set up the skeleton that allows you to know everything about your customer the way you want to? And, and the wonderful thing about business today is digital, like you leave a footprint wherever you go. Like That's true. you get creeped out by it if you want to, but we're carrying a phone. Everybody knows everything you're doing. So 
the reality is we should be using that to our advantage. And I don't think like the number one thing that I hear doing consulting in the cannabis industry today is, oh, we're a new industry. We don't have any data. (laughs) It's three years of transaction. The thing is over $3 billion in revenue. There's some data there. I promise you there's data there. We're not sharing the data, but there's data there. (laughs) And it's interesting when I sat in the commercial officer chair, I really pushed for what I call democratized data. Yeah. Because one, it's government mandated, right? So like you are the government mandated wholesale, there's nowhere else to go, but the industry will be better for having a good understanding of who the customer is and how they're transacting collectively to stand it up than not. And my personal opinion on this is that there are hundreds of years beyond today for you to compete head on, share the data today to build the right platform so you have somewhere to compete. Yeah. And, and that would be the advice I give to other industries that I think cannabis is trying to find their way through, but I, I feel like we're three years into this and we're still talking about no data and, and this vision of democratized data for the whole industry doesn't exist yet. So. Yeah. I, I think your point around, even if you start manually, you know, like the point you made about Canadian tire, intuitively building those foundations uh, are going to serve you in the, the long term. And then leapfrog of course the pandemic happened and so they haven't had to go through a digital revolution but in ontario they kind of did so the the way the market is set up in ontario is um the retail stores are privately owned and operated and the government runs distribution and online sales oh well fast forward to the pandemic and the provincial government shut down all the stores so they as a monopoly like one might suggest that's not particularly competitive so they had to allow the stores to do click and collect. Oh, okay. The problem with that is the entire regulatory industry was such that stores were never going to have online sales. Oh, so nobody had the infrastructure. They did not. Yes, of course. Inside of three weeks, you saw companies stand up, click and collect and, and figure that out. And now as the stores have opened back up there, you know, there's a big effort going on lobbying the government here in Canada to make sure that they can keep that capability, yeah, keep course. that offering to, to stores, but they were able to stand it up and, and they did it in partnership with their POS providers. Yeah, okay. Right. And, and kind of leveraging those systems to be able to kind of transact and do it. So I share that just to say one, there's been this little blip that says, holy we need to be thinking about digital and we need to be thinking about how this pertains in our business because the customers there, regardless of the regulations, haven't caught up. Oh, wow. That's a um, fascinating coda <laughs> to the whole story of the industry starting up in the midst of a pandemic there. Very cool. Well, thank you for sharing uh, your perspectives. Hey, you've been very generous with both your your experience and expertise and I want to thank you for joining us. And I, I think the messages that you've shared today about the power of yes, the combination of the art and the science, the role of data and, and technology in today's world, and some of the strategies on how you can drive and be successful uh, in today's world, even in really hard to change organizations, has been invaluable. So thank you for being here today. Thank you for joining us, Sherry. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it, Tony. I did too, very, very much. And uh, to all of our listeners out there, thank you once again for joining us. Make sure you subscribe to our show to keep getting new updates. And until next time, don't just implement planning. Remember to redefine it. Thank you for listening to Masters of Digital Transformation. 
For more information, be sure to check out www.09solutions.com slash aim10x.